Charles Bowden lives in Tucson, Arizona, and writes about the cultural and physical environment of the Southwest. His style is harsh, beautiful, and somewhat painful, as he describes the violent, destructive acts committed against nature and society. You're hearing voices from NPR. I'm Scott Carrier, and this is Charles Bowden, with some of the people he's written about. I am not of sound mind. I cannot seem to stop moving. As I write this, I have clocked 7,000 miles by truck in the last 30 days, and I'm hunkered in a motel room high in the Rocky Mountains, and yet no nearer to God. I seek roots, just so long as they can accommodate themselves to around 75 miles an hour and no unseemly whining about rest stops or sit-down dinners. I am, I suspect, a basic American, a perpetual violation that loves the land and cannot kick the addiction of velocity, a person fated never to settle, yet always seeking the place to settle. Like cocaine-powered athletes, lying presidents, Miss America, and the Internal Revenue Service, I am not a role model, and I'm always hungry. I can only make a stab at writing the truth if I tell others it is fiction. That way nobody gets too upset with me. I can only get started writing if I think it is music. That way I beat back my own cowardice. I can only write if I don't think at all. Okay, my name is uh, Meg Keppen, and we're at my house outside of Aravaca, Arizona. Uh, Chuck came out here to Aravaca to visit a friend of his that was on the run from the law and from the mafia, actually. And um, we met at a social gathering. He was, I think, looking for a story, you know, uh, history of Aravaca. A Wave of the Hand was the title that he put on the story. I'm not quite sure how I got to be one of the main characters, probably just circumstance, having just met him at the party and our mutual interests. And it's always embarrassing to see see yourself in there, you know, exposed, if you will. But, uh, well, this is the beginning of A Wave of the Hand by Charles Bowden. The ceiling light paints the windows milk, and we sit in the ranch house, sealed off from the summer night, On the walls are huge paintings of Indians and of mountain passes. She is talking, and there is this simple strand of things I notice. Her quick, bright words, the light painting, the windows milk, the big paintings. The house is not her house. It is not my house. It's a kind of no-man's land. The occupant is a friend of mine, and he is on the run. For her, it is not the same, but similar. She is very quick, with eyes that can only be called bright, blue, focused, alert, intelligent, eyes waiting like a hungry cat and ready to pounce. I'll tell you a simple story that will save time. The Border Patrol likes to descend on Chorizo like wolves and prowl about people's property, looking for dope. These visitations violate various parts of the Bill of Rights, and she cannot abide such behavior. So one night she hears the squad car prowling down her country lane and she leaps out of bed around four in the morning and storms out. She's standing in the glare of the headlights giving the officers a piece of her mind when she notices she's bucked naked. Yep. (laughs) There she is. (laughs) My name is Clara Jeffrey and I'm a senior editor at Harper's Magazine. And I first started working with Chuck almost five years ago on a piece on Juarez and uh, women who were working there in the Maquiladoras and who were disappearing and, and their bodies were being found, sort of mutilated. And the way that he approached it was by sort of profiling the city through these photographers who were actually out there shooting sort of scenes of street crimes and, and everything that was going on. And sort of by telling the story of a city through the story of photographers who were documenting it, he managed to stack up these layers of visual imagery as well as reporting. 
and in a way that I just found really magical. I mean, he was he was. I think he really understands, and is sort of simultaneously re- attracted and repulsed by the dark side of human nature. Um, I mean, not to sound too much like Star Wars, but I think he understands how the dark and the light fit together, and how you know you can't really have one without the other. Um, and it's right on those peripheries um, that things get interesting. I mean, he can write in one sentence or a paragraph and give you a sense of what's great about America, but also what's just so brutal and horrible about it. Imagine the problem is not physical. Imagine the problem has never been physical, that it is not biodiversity, it is not the ozone layer, it is not the greenhouse effect the whales, the old-growth forests, the loss of jobs, the crack in the ghetto, the abortions, the tongue in the mouth, the diseases stalking everywhere as love goes on, unconcerned. Imagine the problem is not some syndrome of our society, not something that can be solved by commissions or laws or a redistribution of what we call wealth. Imagine that it goes deeper, right to the core of what we call our civilization, and that no one outside of ourselves can affect real change, that our civilization, our governments, are sick, and that we are mentally ill and spiritually dead, and that all our issues and crises are symptoms of this deeper sickness. Imagine the problem is not physical, and no amount of driving, no amount of road will help deal with the problem. Imagine that the problem is not that we are powerless, or that we are victims, but that we have lost the fire and belief and courage to act. We hear whispers of the future, but we slap our hands against our ears. We catch glimpses, but we turn our faces swiftly aside. The whistle is always blowing. There is no denying what is before my eyes. We all know the future. We only must say it and face it. There will be no first hundred days for this future. There will be no five-year plans. There will be no program. Imagine the problem is that we cannot imagine a future where we possess less but are more. Imagine the problem is a future that terrifies us because we lose our machines but gain our feet and pounding hearts. Then what is to be done? My name is Barbara Seanfield. I live in Plano, Texas. And uh, Plano, Texas, has had a problem with heroin overdoses uh, in their children. And I was speaking at the city hall uh, about the heroin problem and the fact that I had lost my son to heroin. Charles Bowden was there. After I spoke, he came up to me and told me that um, he was interested in interviewing me further about uh, what I had said. And I was a little bit taken aback. Uh, he told me it was with Esquire magazine, and my first reaction was, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, what is someone from Esquire magazine doing in the audience here in Plano, Texas? Uh, also, he didn't look like your typical author. I mean, he did not look like a Dominic Dunn. He had uh, longish hair, a turquoise shirt, and just looked like an ordinary type guy, except maybe more like a biker. Um when it came out, I knew it was coming out, so I ran down to uh, the nearest grocery store and picked it up off the magazine rack and stood there and read it with tears streaming down my face because I'll be honest with you, the man caught my feelings. He knew what I was going through. He knew what my husband was going through, and he put it to paper. He didn't make it maudlin. It was just very stark, and it was there. Barbara Seanfield pours me a cup of coffee and then leads me into the living room. The house runs around 400,000, sports a mansard roof, and has the whiff of a French chateau. She points out the family portraits all bunched together on a table, and there is a snapshot of Matt, a clean-shaven, solid kid. And she tells me that's her favorite shot, something about the eyes, she says, that really captures her boy. And then she takes me back to the dining table that rests at the elbow of a big L, formed by the spacious kitchen in the mammoth family room. 
And there over the fireplace is a painting based on the photograph. And Matt looks down with keen eyes, and his eyes have a kind of dreamy quality, and that fits because he was a quirky kid who could have a good time wandering his own imagination. A funny kid, always alert to the absurdity of life and all that is in the painting and peering out from the eyes. There's something else in the painting, a kind of furtive gaze, the gaze of a hunted animal, and that is part of what Barbara Schoenfield wants to talk about also. She's a woman who knows in her bones how them became us. He captured my son completely. He was a funny kid. He was alert to the absurdity of life. And he did have these dreamy eyes. And the world was a very painful place for Matt. And I think that, that Chuck Bowden realized that and captured that just by looking at that painting of him. Well, I'm uh, Max Cleland, and I'm a member of the United States Senate from Georgia. Uh, Esquire magazine wanted to do a feature article on me, and uh, I guess because I was one of the few Vietnam veterans in the Senate, and also because uh, I was the only multiple amputee in the Senate, having lost both legs and my right arm in Vietnam in a grenade explosion, and I had never met uh, Chuck Bowden before. I've been interviewed by, I guess, uh, literally hundreds of people in the last 31 years. He's the single finest uh, interviewer, storyteller, writer that I've ever come across. He has an ability to capture people uh, and their who they are, um, who they really are, uh, below the surface. He, he, he knows the surface story, and he'll narrate the surface story, but he captures, uh, and certainly did for me, a psychological dimension that I'm not even aware of myself. For instance, he starts off and says, describing just my early first movements in the day. He says, the day always begins with the left arm. The clock reads 5.30 or 6 a.m. The plaque next to the bed always whispers the same thing. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. That's it. The glowing numbers announce the time, the velvet darkness, and then with the light switched on, the line whispering off the plaque. The body sits up. And this is the hard part to state, because here the words fail. The left arm of the body grabs the left arm of the waiting chair. The body leans forward and begins to arc through the air. And as the body arcs, it is poised over the left arm of the chair. And then it twirls and turns a full 180 degrees and settles into the seat of the chair. Then he gets into the old inspiration thing, eh? Uh, meditation floods the morning hours. It's the drug Max Cleland craves. The desk in his Senate office is scattered with biblical quotes and other writings. He quotes me, he says, I need every bit of motivation I can possibly get, Cleland offers by way of explanation. And an old hymn sings out, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid by your faith in his excellent works. A block of type insists, If it is to be, it's up to me. Then there's the Tennyson's Ulysses, a bit of Psalms, some Jeremiah, a taste of Ephesians, and a brass clock engraved, take it to the max. The cops look at me with anger, drag her slumping form away, and toss her into the back of a squad car. I stand still, make no notes. Then I go back to the newsroom and write up the funeral. That is when it begins. The toddler's death probably didn't have anything to do with child molestation. But for me, this child became the entry point to rape and other categories of abuse. For the next three years, I live in a world where the desire of people, almost always men, to touch and have their way with others makes them criminals. Gradually, I begin to lose the distinction between the desires of criminals and the desires of the rest of us. I'm told I can't get off this beat because most reporters won't do it. This may be true. I don't really know, because those three years are the only ones I've ever spent working for a newspaper, and practically the only ones I ever spent working for anyone besides myself. I'd quit the paper twice, break down more often than I can remember, and I'd have to go away for a week or two and kill, through violent exercise, 
the things that roam my mind. It was during this period that I began taking 100 or 200 mile walks in the desert, far from any trails. I would write these flights from myself up and people began to talk about me as a nature writer. The rest of my time was spent with another nature, the one we call, by common consent, deviant or marginal or unnatural. My name is Mike Manning. I'm a lawyer in Phoenix, Arizona. I first met Chuck Bowden in about 1991 when Chuck was researching a book uh, on, on Charlie Keating. I've never met anybody uh, who had uh, as insightful a judgment as uh, Chuck Bowden has. He has a, a depth of knowledge about our government, our uh, political system, our business system, which I think uh, is unparalleled. I think he has no peer in that regard. He is perpetually disheveled. Um, his hair is always a mess and longer than it should be. He always looks like he could have used another four or five hours sleep the night before, and, and that's probably correct. He's probably been up reading. Um, he used When I knew him, when I first knew him, he was, uh, he was a chain smoker, or nearly so. Uh, very thin, um, always dressed as if uh, he's about to make a trek into into one of our deserts here in, in Arizona. Uh, but I'll tell you, when when he when he looks into your eyes and starts starts talking, he is very penetrating. Uh, and this man has a physical presence. Once he starts uh, talking with you, if he's trying to find something out about you or about what you do or about what you think. You have, you have very little chance of keeping that hidden if you spend more than 20 minutes with this guy. Um, and he pulls it off by, by being uh, agendaless. I mean, when, you meet, when he, you meet with this guy, this is not a journalist that is out there to prosecute a certain agenda. He wants to find out the truth, and he wants to explain the truth as best he can. And I think that's disarming uh, to, to people like me and a person like Charles Keating. Uh, if, if Keaton, all, all Keating wanted to do was have a fair shot in the press, and I f- think that Chuck Bowden made him feel like he was going to get a fair shot, and indeed he got a fair shot. I'm Gary Webb, and um, I wrote a book called Dark Alliance a couple of years ago um, about the CIA and drug trafficking. And before that, I was a newspaper reporter for about 20 years for you know major dailies and did a lot of investigative reporting. And Chuck... Um, he had been following from afar, mainly over the web and email, um, what had happened to me as a result of the series I did for the San Jose Mercury News, which pointed out how the CIA and uh, the Contras had um, worked on this fairly elaborate drug network during the 1980s that dumped you know, hundreds of tons of cocaine into South Central Los Angeles. And so... After I quit the newspaper, because the newspaper wouldn't stick up for me, um, he came to see me to find out, you know, who I was and um, how this happened. And and he he wasn't easy. I mean, he asked a lot of hard and tough questions um, because I think he had doubts about it initially himself. And, and, and I think that's the way he should have approached the story. I was very impressed with the guy. Um, he, he went out and found things that I didn't find when I was doing my investigation which fascinated me because he wasn't even working on the story, and he found some great evidence to substantiate what I had written about. So um, reading the story, I thought I was an expert in the issue, and I read his story and learned things. Here's the gist of the problem. We can't stop drugs from entering the United States because our border with Mexico is the most heavily crossed one on Earth and, at 1,995 miles in length, unpoliceable. We can't stop Mexicans from illegally entering the United States because that nation is poor, overpopulated, and growing. And if the poor do not come north, Mexico implodes. We can't force the Mexican government to seriously crack down on the drug trade because the country is dependent on drug money for its survival. And we can't stop money laundering or the transfer of billions of narco dollars back and forth across the border 
because of the North American Free Trade Agreement and because of the sheer velocity of modern capital flows. And we can't discuss these matters because for years both political parties have made it an act of faith that the war on drugs, the 1986 immigration reform bill, NAFTA, and a steel wall here and there on the border are taking care of the problem. And you cannot believe what I have just said because, well, you haven't heard it before. You know, you feel very often at the beginning of one of his pieces, it's it's like you've been on the roller coaster that's been ratcheted all the way up to the top, and just as you read the first line, you're plummeting down, and, you know, God knows where you're going. You know, you you, you have to be prepared to sort of get clocked on the head when you read when you read Chuck. Chuck's depth and feeling for the subjects he writes about is such that I think it frightens people. But to me, it just, uh, from the very first, it just grabbed me and pulled me in with its straight-to-the-heart truth. Um, there's just so many layers uh, to what the picture that he's painting for us that uh, it just draws you right in. And even if it's a place you don't want to live, it's very interesting to be there for a while. It's just so alive, and I like being fully alive. So this is how you know you will go. You will turn from the bar, and they will say you must come with them. Your arms are grasped, and you're out the door before you can even remember to grab that drink. The faces of the customers blur as you go by, and later you will remember all those faces turning away or looking down at the floor. The wrists will be instantly taped together, The legs possibly also will be bound at this time, and maybe tape over the mouth. You land hard on the floor of the vehicle, the engine starts, you sense movement, and then the kicking begins, and all you notice is the cracking of your rib cage. You have begun to disappear, and yet you still exist, exist in your mind and in your pain, but back there where the drink sits waiting on the bar, Back there, you no longer exist. In fact, back there, everyone is beginning to understand that you never existed. A stab of pain, a white sheet of flame reaches up and burns your head as a boot smashes your testicles. Charles Bowden. I'm Scott Carrier of Utah Valley University. I produced that piece with music by Neil Young. Coming up, writers Isak Dennison and Alex Caldero. That's in a minute on Hearing Voices from NPR. This is HearingVoices.com. You're hearing voices with pen to paper. Baroness Karen Blixen wrote under the pen name Isak Dennison. She was born in Denmark, the setting for her story, Babette's Feast. Her memoir, Out of Africa, describes her years in Kenya. In 1985, Larry Massett, with NPR's Susan Stamberg, produced this portrait. Would you feel sorry if uh, we knew of your of this country because of her writing? Tell me that you say that you, as a Westerner, know Kenya because of Karen. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> She knew nothing about Kenya as such. She had a few friends, and she got her farm. That's all. I had a farm in Africa, at the foot of the Ingong Hills. The equator runs across these highlands, a hundred miles to the north, and the farm lay at an altitude of over 6,000 feet. In the daytime, you felt that you had got high up near to the sun but the early mornings and evenings were limpid and restful and the nights were cold the geographical position and the height of the land combined to create a landscape that had not its like in all the world there was no fat on it and no luxuriance anywhere it was Africa distilled up through 6,000 feet like the strong and refined essence of a continent Karen Blixen was 28 years old when she went to British East Africa to marry and set up a coffee plantation. 
1914, a number of Europeans were settling in Africa, wrestling with a difficult environment, putting down roots in ancient soil. The land posed cruel challenges to Karen Blixen. On it, she would find failure as a farmer, disappointment in marriage, and the death of those she loved most. But when she wrote about it, there was serenity in her pen. The views were immensely wide. Everything that you saw made for greatness and freedom and unequaled nobility. The chief feature of the landscape and of your life in it was the air. Looking back on a sojourn in the African highlands, you are struck by your feelings of having lived for a time up in the air. The sky was rarely more than pale blue or violet with a profusion of mighty, weightless, ever-changing clouds towering up and sailing on it. But it has a blue vigor in it, and at a short distance it painted the ranges of hills and the woods a fresh, deep blue. She felt she had come from a rushed and noisy world into a still country, and her writing brought readers into that stillness and made them feel that they too had come home, to a place that was almost mythical in its peacefulness, distant and strange as it was. In her day, a time of movie-tone newsreels before there was television, she described Africa so the reader could see it. A herd of elephants paced for her as if they had an appointment at the end of the world. Giraffes were rare, speckled, gigantic flowers slowly advancing. The iguana are not pretty in shape, but nothing can be imagined more beautiful than their coloring. They shine like a heap of precious stones or like a pane cut out of an old church window. When, as you approach, they swish away, there is a flash of azure, green and purple over the stones. The color seems to be standing behind them in the air, like a comet's luminous tail. With economy and precision, she caught the landscape and its inhabitants. After reading Out of Africa, a visit to Kenya only confirms her representation of it. Ernest Hemingway said his Nobel Prize for Literature should have gone to her. In Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger's hero Holden Caulfield names Isak Dinesen as his favorite writer. In the middle of the day, the air was alive over the land like a flame burning. Up in this high air, you breathed easily, drawing in a vital assurance and lightness of heart. In the highlands, you woke up in the morning and thought, here I am, where I ought to be. Karen Blixen remained in those highlands for 17 years, but she didn't write about Africa, didn't become Isak Dinesen, until she'd left the continent. In 1937, Out of Africa was published, a lyrical evocation of the country, an act of memory and of art. Out of Africa is really a pastoral. It's not, it's not an autobiography. Dinesen's biographer, Judith Thurman. She made, out of Africa, she recomposed her experience and gave it a, an extraordinary shape and made it into a kind of idol in a way that ends in a tragedy, but she sees it from a great distance. And without the struggle and the depression and the uncertainty and all the conflict that she really experienced. I mean, the person who narrates out of Africa seems to have completely made peace with loss. Is very, very serene, sort of is a transcendent quality to the prose. The idol she narrates, the art she composes, comes from deliberate omission and suppression. Isaac Dinesen creates praise where there was pain. She called herself not a writer, but a storyteller. In fact, she was a master architect. She built on paper. Can you tell me what is this house? Yeah, what is this house? Who lives in this house? Miss Karen. Karen? Yeah. What? I know only Karen. I don't know the other name. Huh. Yeah. And why are you fixing it now? It is for a... We are now fixing for a museum. About her and her life? It's a, a grey stone house uh, built in 1917, uh, 12 miles from Nairobi. Spacious lawns, and then behind the house, in the distance, the outline of the Ngong Hills which are very beautiful. Was it a wonderful place to come to? Oh, no. The way she writes about that house and the frequent visitors who would come and stay with her there, she says for them it was like a, a ship, a brightly lit ship uh, on a sea after so many miles of darkness. 
well, you can call it that, but uh, uh, it, it was in the middle of 5,000 acres. Good furniture and lovely china. Good books. Good books. Few good pictures, but um, we didn't meet an awful lot, you know. We lived some distance away and we didn't often meet because we worked. But we went on safaris together and we remained great friends. I think women were very courageous in those days. They were terribly tough. They all had to confront um, problems of um, accidents, diseases, being left alone, building their houses. They didn't complain in those days, you know. It wasn't the least difficult. And I don't call it complaining when you say your crop has died of drought or whatever it is. I lived alone for 32 years on the farm and I didn't find it difficult. She writes about um, people, uh, tribal people who lived near her, her farm who would come to her and say, you must help us. We have a lion that's been coming in and getting our cattle. Please come and kill the lion. And then she would go out and do that. That happened to us all. But that was just ordinary farm work. You wouldn't hear of a lion for <coughs> months. Then one of your best cows was taken. So then you had to sit up over the dead cow until the, you hoped the lion would appear. My manager came to my house all aflame to tell me that in the night two lions had been to the farm and had killed two of our oxen. I then went in to find Dennis. Dennis had great experience with lions. He said that they would come back early in the night to finish the meat and that we ought to give them time to settle down on it and go down to the fields ourselves at nine o'clock. At nine o'clock, we went out. As I lighted the torch, the whole world changed into a brilliantly lighted stage. The wet leaves of the coffee tree shone. The clods of the ground showed up quite clearly. First, the circle of light struck a little wide-eyed jackal like a small fox. I moved the light on, and there was the lion. He stood, facing us straight, and he looked very light with all the black African night behind him. As the light reached him, he turned his head and then is shot. Africa in the second grew endlessly big, and Dennis and I standing upon it, infinitely small. Outside our torchlight, there was nothing but darkness. In the darkness, in two directions, there were lions, and from the sky, rain. Dennis is Dennis Finchhatton, an English aristocrat a great white hunter who led safaris for the Prince of Wales and American millionaires. Dennis Finchhatton had come to Africa in 1910. He met Karen Blixen in 1918. Fearless, charming, brilliantly educated, he was a confirmed bachelor. He stood six foot three and wore a series of curious hats to cover the fact that he was balding. This we know not from the writing of Isaac Dennison, but from others who knew him. There is no physical description of Finch Hatton in Out of Africa and no direct reference to his 13-year relationship with Karen Blixen. It's all between the lines, in passages that are declarations of love only when you know that they were lovers. Dennis Finch Hatton had no other home in Africa than the farm. He lived in my house between his safaris and kept his books and his gramophone there. When he came back to the farm, it gave out what was in it. It spoke as the coffee plantations speak, when with the first showers of the rainy season they flower, dripping wet, a cloud of chalk. When I was expecting Dennis back and heard his car coming up the drive, I heard at the same time the things of the farm all telling what they really were. He was happy on the farm. He came there only when he wanted to come. He didn't have a permanent home. He had decided to go to Africa, away from his English background, and he adored walking through the bush, being in the bush, going on safari, and eventually that became his profession. Therefore, for two-thirds of the year, he was away from wh wherever his base was, and uh, that meant he came and went. 
In Silence Will Speak, her biography of Dennis Finch Hatton, Errol Trebinsky tells how he would signal to Karen Blixen that he was back from safari. Oh, yes, if she was away from the house, uh, he would set the gramophone going with one of their favorite pieces of music. Uh, I think that that is a wonderful ploy, and I don't think that very many women could resist it if they were even mildly attracted to a man. I think it was a remarkable way of announcing your presence. And he'd obviously used this with other people because uh, in Catherine de Bechet de Balin's house, he actually climbed in through a window in the middle of the night and started playing her piano in the drawing room when she was in the house asleep. And uh, so he, he obviously realized it was quite effective. She suffered terribly uh, when he would come and go and, and leave her hanging, and she would be, be devastated. Again, none of this appears in Out of Africa. It is the biographer Judith Thurman who points out the realities in her book, Isak Dinesen, The Life of a Storyteller. She was much more ambivalent towards Africa and towards pretty much everyone she was involved with out there than you could possibly guess from, from reading out of Africa. And her life with Dennis was also not this pure friendship, um, untroubled friendship that she makes it out. She was needy. She masked it for a long time. Uh, she was lonely, and when she was lonely and insecure, that's when she tended to want to cling to Dennis, and um, she also realized that this was completely not on and completely inappropriate. And it was something destined to drive him away? Yes, absolutely. Judith Thurman reveals that when Karen Blixen thought she was pregnant, Dennis Finch Hatton refused to accept responsibility for a child. When her farm was in desperate financial trouble, he offered no help. Thurman sees Dennison's oblique references to Dennis, he appears only sparingly in the book, as the convention of literary discretion. But the obliqueness may also be avoidance, a way of suppressing, dealing with pain. And those who knew Karen Blixen's life are startled by other omissions in Out of Africa. J.R. Martin in Kenya. Her husband is only one, uh, never mentioned once except my husband. <laughs> what do you make of that? Well, they just departed in any case. Yes. And uh, I don't think her affair with Finch Hatton was going all that well. And uh, she was getting to feel more and more lonely. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she was a very sick woman. Her husband, the husband who is barely mentioned, was Baron Brewer Blixen, Swedish, a distant cousin. Like Dennis Finch Hatton, Blixen was a big game hunter, one of the greatest in Africa. Brewer and Karen Blixen's marriage lasted nine years. Their marriage ended relatively... It ended in 1922 officially, but it sort of started to fall apart fairly quickly. He ran around. He was never there. He was profligate. He spent all their money. He was a terrible manager. He was just an unreliable person. He, um, he gave her syphilis. The syphilis was never cured. It wasn't the kind that makes you mad. It was syphilis of the spine, but it was crippling. Um, she said, well, you have a choice. You either forgive the man or you shoot him. To Dennis Finchatton, I owe what was, I think, the greatest, the most transporting pleasure of my life on the farm. I flew with him over Africa. A year after Brewer and Karen Blixen were divorced, Dennis moved onto the farm. There, where there are few or no roads, and where you can land on the plains, Flying becomes a thing of real and vital importance in your life. It opens up a world. Once, when Dennis and I had been up and were landing on the farm, a very old Kikuyu came up and talked to us. You were up very high today, he said. We could not see you, only hear the airplane sing like a bee. I agreed that we had been up high. Did you see God, he asked. No, Andretti, I said, we did not see God. Aha, then you were not up high enough, he said. But now, tell me, do you think that you will be able to get up high enough to see him? I do not know, Andretti, I said. And you, Badar, he said, turning to Dennis, what do you think? Will you get up high enough in your aeroplane to see God? 
Really, I do not know, said Dennis. Then said Andretti, I do not know at all why you two go on flying. Dennis Finchhatton's plane, a gypsy moth, crashed in May of 1931. His death came just as the coffee farm failed. At the age of 46, Karen Blixen lost everything she cared about in life. Later, she would see these events as destiny, an act of God. In fact, she and Dennis had quarreled badly, and he moved off her farm shortly before he died. As for the farm itself, many who knew her felt its collapse was inevitable. Blixen's friend, Rose Cartwright. She wasn't a farmer. It was hard work for her for the farm, and she didn't like it. She wasn't a natural farmer. But she was told by good farmers that she never would make money on that farm. There wasn't enough water, for one thing. I do know that Ingrid Lindstrom and her husband tried and tried to persuade Karen Blixen to devote her land to the development of firewood which would have been extremely profitable for her and she would not do it her her heart and her notion of success was tied up with coffee farming and she would listen to no one biographer errol trubinsky it is a very romantic crop it's very beautiful uh, even when it's not in flower the leaves are glossy when the um, trees are healthy and then the flowers are like orange blossom, they're white and they have a, a marvellous sort of smell and then of course the berries weigh very heavy and look very splendid when there's a decent crop, but she very rarely had that and never mind the reason, coffee never did any good at Karen if she had run a mixed farm, she might have got away with it, at least made profits to offset some of the coffee losses J.R. Martin I was a naughty boy who kicked her out Martin bought the farm from Karen Blixen and turned the land into Karen Estates, now a wealthy suburb of Nairobi. When I took over eventually, I turned off 187 families of squatters and 3,000 head of cattle. Now, if she'd been running 3,000 head of cattle and maize and so on, she might even have a go at it. But she wouldn't do that because she, never would, she was too fond of the African and wouldn't turn them off. <laughs> you didn't have that problem, but you felt that was a business weakness of hers? I didn't want uh, 3,000 head of cattle, and I didn't want 187 families. Was she foolish not to have gotten rid of those Africans? Well, she loved them too much. Eventually, she had to get rid of them, and she did something that was in those days quite unique. We had in those days forest reserves which was sacrosanct. And she managed to persuade government to put 187 families and give them land in the Africa, in, in, in the forest reserve next to Karen. <laughs> she did that for her people, and good luck to her. J.R. Martin tried to help Karen Blixen stay on in Africa, but she turned down his offer. I said to her, if you care to stay as long as you like, and, and you know, uh, fair enough. We don't need the property, uh, the house at the moment. And her answer was that she would rather live on one acre in Sahara Desert than 20 acres in a suburb of Nairobi. <laughs> the loss of the farm marked the end of Karen Blixen's life in Africa. But in a strange way, it also gave her Africa, just as the death of her lover made Dennis Finch Hatton hers forever. She took possession of the man and the continent now in her writing. In 1931, Karen Blixen returned to Denmark to spend the rest of her life in the house where she was born. She returned to a vocation which had engaged her since childhood. She chose as her pen name Isak, I-S-A-K. In Hebrew, the one who laughs. I do think that the, the, the series of crushing blows and losses heaped on top of each other finally made her laugh at fate. Biographer Judith Thurman. To find herself really bereft um, in middle age shook her up to the point where she, she had to... She had started writing stories as a young girl, and, and now she came back to them, but with a sense that there was nothing else to do. Isaac Dennison never went back to Africa. 
with the publication of Seven Gothic Tales in 1934 and Out of Africa in 1937, she became a celebrity. Other books followed, Winter's Tales, Anecdotes of Destiny, Shadows on the Grass, Last Tales. The woman who had called herself Scheherazade as she spun tales for her lover in Africa was now storyteller to readers throughout the world. Few readers suspected that she was often in great pain from the syphilis that plagued her throughout her life. In old age, she grew dependent on amphetamines. When she died in 1962 at the age of 77, the cause of death was emaciation. She weighed 90 pounds. Near the end of Out of Africa, Isaac Dinesen tells a short story. Like most of her stories, it is set in the past, in the 19th century. A Danish count visits a traveling menagerie, and the showkeeper leads him around, pointing out the different animals. The count is entertained until they come to the snakes. The snakes horrify him, and the showman wants to know why. Why, said the count? Because, my friend, the aversion to snakes is a sound human instinct. The people who have got it have kept alive. The snake is the deadliest of all the enemies of man. The man who can caress a snake can do anything. The showman stood for a little while in deep thought. Your Excellency, he said at last, you must needs love snakes. There's no way round it. Out of my own experience of life, I can tell you so. And indeed, it is the best advice that I can give you. You should love the snakes. Keep in your mind, Your Excellency, how often, keep in mind, Your Excellency, that nearly every time that we ask the Lord for a fish, he will give us a serpent. Joy Zinnemann of the Studio Theater of Washington, D.C., reading from Out of Africa by Isaac Dennison. That portrait was produced by Larry Massett with NPR's Susan Stamberg. We'll end this Hearing Voices Hour with music by Theta Knot and my friend, poet, and word shaker, Alex Caldiero. Writing every word with the same letter till every word is exactly all the words together kept the same exactly every and each singly and all together too precisely the same word after word the same as each the same as each other and one another two kept being all with the same letter which written over and over make each word itself and the others as itself over the same letter the same words read out loud. Every word in every book turns into one letter, all written with one letter, pronounced in many ways depending on how many times it is written together. Three together and four together, and five or seven together, each group make a sound, and that's how other letters come to be. But it is one letter, and only one which is written, and every word in every book is this one letter, and only one. Not A, not B, not C, not any one of these, unknown to our alphabet, and yet that alphabet depends on it. Not D, not E, not F, not G. For a long time, I thought it was O, because I could see it in most letters, at the heart or core of most letters' main body part. The rest of the letters were just broken or stretched out O's. Another time, I was looking at O. At a distance, it was a dot. Close 
It was a circle, back and forth, close and far, vibrating. There could be no end to this. One time, I thought it was the letter I, because it looked so much like me. The day I stood under a round cloud all alone, outside, looking up at it, with my arms at my side and my legs close together. I wrote your name using only one letter and then wrote my feelings for you all with that same letter, wrote my heart's desire, told everything and all with one letter, the same letter I keep writing about but which can't be written about unless you are willing to write everything with it and with it alone tell everything forever and ever always with one single letter and people will think you can't write that you don't know what you're saying or that you are crazy making the same one letter over and over and saying it each time different and saying everything you want and then maybe saying the same sound over and over but each time just a little different and you are saying wonderful things which can't be said otherwise than with that one Theta Knot from their CD Soundweave with poet Alex Caldero I'm Scott Carrier. Alex and I both teach at Utah Valley University in Orem, uvu.edu. Go Wolverines. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.